Hey podcast listeners, Michael Maurer here. Thanks first of all for tuning in to Superhero Movie Club. Just a couple of things before we get into our inaugural episode. I'm about to call this the Superhero Movie Breakdown. Back in November when this was recorded, we were playing around with titles and we still weren't sure. So just a heads up, we've changed it since then. Uh, Towards the beginning of the podcast, we predicted three movies to overtake Guardians of the Galaxy in box office earnings before the end of 2014. Again, we recorded this in November, and since then, it looks like Guardians of the Galaxy will stay on top as 2014's most profitable film domestically. Anyway, hope you enjoy the cast and stick around for new episodes every week. Here we go. The superhero movie breakdown. I'm your host, Michael Maurer, with uh, James Skyler Houtma. Ooh, it's a great name. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I thought so too. <laughs> and we're here to cover everything from themes to budget on superhero movies or on comic book movies or on movies based on comic books. All of those are the same thing. Are they? <laughs> movies based on comic books based on movies based on books on superheroes okay <clears throat> as long as it has that element and this week's topic is that's right guardians of the galaxy so first up what we like to talk about Skyler, give me in two and a half and a half minutes or less your your breakdown oh okay despite the fact that uh you know popular opinion seems to you know i saw the phrase best marvel movie ever thrown around when it came out i was kind of underwhelmed by the film it's you know a decent summer popcorn movie entertainment and all that i just found it to be really formulaic like to a fault with a lot of the trademark Marvel humor coming off as really forced this time around. I did like some of the performers. Um, I thought Zoe Saldana did a really good job. Chris Pratt was good in parts. I mean, the movie definitely looked awesome. It just, following a movie like Captain America Winter Soldier, which had all these, it just had all this, you know, depth and themes that were really relevant, I felt this was just a big step backward into fluff. Okay. Let me retort that with Guardians of the Galaxy may be one of the best Marvel films of all time. Uh, <laughs> we like to call him Skeptical Skylar for opinions like this. Because appreciate the wonderful novelty of this misfit of aliens. It's fantastic. <laughs> so let's get into the nitty gritty of what made the film. And, you know, the success of the film. Because really, we can talk about all the artistic stuff, and that's great. But... The movie industry is at first a business. Business. And your movies need to make money or they don't get made. That's the simple that's a simple fact. So 
Guardians of the Galaxy money stats. It was produced by Marvel Studios, which has now developed a brand equity of ridiculousness. Before it was announced, it was, there was kind of a sentiment that, oh, Marvel's getting ready for its biggest bomb yet. Not really the case in that as of October of, you know, two months after it came out, it's now the third largest grossing Marvel movie in history. Yes, and let's not forget currently the highest grossing domestic movie of 2014 so far. Yes. With, what's the number? I believe it's $705 million That's worldwide. domestic. Yeah, that's domestic and foreign, and it's got about $327 million domestically, which is still $67 million more than Cap 2 made, which would have been number two. Mm-hmm. But 2014 isn't over. There are still two movies who are prepped to take over the spot. Three movies. You're, you're signing at me. Three movies. Give me those three movies, Skylar. Okay, well, uh, coming November, late November... Uh, is the first part of the last Hunger Games movie, which is like, it's going to do gangbusters in the U- United States, guaranteed. <laughs> um, Hobbit movie also is preparing for its last chapter. Those haven't been doing as well in the United States. I mean, they're not even like comparable to the Lord of the Rings movies. And then I think a third movie that's coming out that's going to probably knock it down a peg, at least it has a very good chance of it, is Christopher Nolan's Interstellar. Oh, I suppose, yeah. Back in 2010, you know, when Inception came out, it's like people thought, ah, it's just going to be a little moderate blockbuster or whatever, and it turned out to be this $800 million movie, so. See, yeah, that brings up a great point because, I mean, Christopher Nolan's name is what brings in the money because usually Interstellar isn't a property that has, like, a book behind it. Oh, no, it's his, he and his brother actually, like, wrote that film, so. All right, phase two, the history of Guardians of the Galaxy. So this is a little tricky because usually Marvel films, at least currently, have had a history of relying on at least 50-year-old characters. Iron Man, Captain America, Thor, Hulk, all these characters have been around for a very long time, especially Captain America. And so they've, well, they weren't really in big into the limelight when their movies came out, um, except for maybe the Hulk. Right. Hulk had that history with the 2003 movies. Yes. Really, they still have a very deep presence in American culture. Guardians of the Galaxy, not so much. No. There's a reason that they're referred to as the C-list of Marvel characters. In the 1969 team, you had a hodgepodge characters that didn't even make it to the film. You had a time-displaced tactician named Major Victory a hulking behemoth muscle-bound character named Charlie Cluster 27. Uh, you had an energy-blasting popsicle named Martin X, and, of course, an archer, because it is necessary for every superhero team to have an archer. Who cares if it's an archaic form of weaponry? It is dynamic and fun, therefore it needs to be in every single team. If nothing else, it's just the joke of the team. It's like, okay, who are we going to you know, sacrifice in battle this time? Throw the archer out there. <laughs> and he needs to be the snippiest member of the team always. Always. And now what were the, the kind of motivations of this group? Because I know what the new New Guardians of the Galaxy in the comic books do. Oh, yes. It's very obscure in that the 1969 team, which hung around for 25 years, bouncing around in different books, and then eventually got their own. But they are surviving members of the long, distant future where they 
all of their other races have been eliminated by an alien force called the Badoon. Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's all comic book, cosmic, gobbly gook. And it kept them around, but they never really got very popular. Books maybe are selling more now because of the movie, but really they're not the most well-known of characters. Enter the 2008 team. When the book gets relaunched by Danny Abnett and Andy Lanning, and you have, again, characters nobody cares about. <laughs> they just picked and grabbed characters from whoever they wanted. So, But these are the ones you see in the movie. Which, from what I understand, the uh, this new run had the team of Star-Lord, Drax the Destroyer, Gamora, Rocket Raccoon, and Groot, who, surprise, all showed up in the movie. Did they also include the uh, Cosmo the Space Dog in this one? Cosmo the Space Dog was a very active member of the Guardians. He was their security guard oh of, of their base in nowhere, the big celestial head that you see in the film. The original members of the team also included these two nobodies, Adam Warlock and Phyla Vale. <laughs> I know of, of Adam Warlock. They're very, it's extremely cosmic, and... You know, really, the book was critically acclaimed. It ran for 25 issues, but it never reached the top 50 bestsellers list. And it's weird that you have these characters that really nobody's... I mean, I never read the book. and I never heard about it in 2008. I mean, I read comics sometimes, mm-hmm. and I, I can understand what the best of the best some of the best of the best are. But And then for Marvel Studios to take a chance and go, yep, we want to make a movie about these losers... And uh, we hope it's going to make a lot of money. And uh, how did that? How did that happen, Skyler? Well, it was a a strange road up until that point. I mean, these guys didn't have much uh, mass media exposure at all. I think possibly the only form I've heard of them in before the, this movie came out was they made a quick appearance on the animated show Avengers: Earth's Mightiest Heroes. But the idea of a Guardians of the Galaxy movie was kind of first batted around in 2020, or, sorry. 2020, huh? Yeah, yeah. We're uh, playing with time here. No, uh, 2010 at uh, that year's Comic-Con by Kevin Feige, who's the, referred to as the showrunner of Marvel. I refer to him as the mastermind. The mastermind. That's, that's, yes, yes, indeed. Um, Yeah, he was like, oh, you know, maybe one day we'll get around to Guardians of the Galaxy. That'd be kind of cool. Great impression. Yeah, Whatever, but the movie was actually officially announced two years later at 2012's Comic-Con for August 1st, 2014. Surprisingly kept that date for upwards of two years, no jumping around or anything like that. As far as when people actually got started on it, probably the first moment where people actually put some effort into it was when a writer by the name of Nicole Perlman wrote a first early draft as part of Marvel's kind of screenwriting stable i guess you would put it as they just marvel that marvel just hired like a group of writers i recur i refer to them as a stable because they were you know just basically cows that they kept around you know not getting a lot of credit or whatnot but they had properties they gave it out like someone grabbed this property see if you can make it into a script that doesn't totally blow chunks and then maybe we can see what goes from there Perlman was the only one to latch on to Guardians of the Galaxy. And apparently it worked, because uh, from there, that's what got him thinking about making the movie. And then she re- rewrote a draft in 2011 that was 
not just the chintzy, stripped-down version. Well, wasn't her original draft dealing with the 1969 team? Yes. um, It's been confirmed that everything Nicole Perlman wrote featured a completely different team from the 2008 run and who we see in this current movie, and that's been said by Feige, and that's been said by the film's director, James Gunn, who uh, jumped on board in 2012, right around the time it was announced, and he actually rewrote the movie. Pretty much the whole thing. Uh, pretty much Only the whole kept Yondu. <laughs> yeah, I think that was the only part of the film he actually kept. And it seems to be confirmed from everyone that everything you see tonally in the film, as well as characters and story, that was pretty much him. Now, Perlman's actually credited in the main credits as co-written by Gunn and Perlman, even though pretty much everything she wrote didn't end up in the movie. By the way, first uh, female to have a writing credit on a Marvel Studios movie, FYI. It's glass ceiling. Cracked. Broken. Well, <laughs> we'll, leave it, we'll leave it at cracked now until someone can actually write a script that doesn't get completely thrown in the trash. That's what I'm saying. Yes, that yeah. doesn't get just whited out exactly. and then replaced. Now, there's nothing really bitter about that, I don't think, because it is fair that Nicole brought this property to attention mm-hmm. as a wonderful space odyssey-type film. And it just so happened that Feige and Gunn maybe didn't really think that this set, while it looked great on paper, probably wasn't going to translate well into film. And it probably, and we don't, we haven't seen it. We are just all speculating at this point. And we just assume that they thought it would make more money if we used this team. And then Gunn gets in his head the idea of some themes he wants to work with and stuff like that. And that's what you see on the screen. But we still recognize Perlman's contribution. Yeah, absolutely. I think the thing we can take away from this with Perlman is that, if anything, she put the idea in these people's heads that, yes, this movie can work. And sometimes that's the toughest thing to do. Absolutely. With when you have this property in general, which people could go up to anyone on the street five, six years ago and be like two years ago. Oh, even then. Yeah. And be like, um, who? Uh, what's a guardian of a galaxy? Um, I'm sorry. I don't. Uh... Is that the new Hunger Games? <laughs> no. <laughs> Is that the new Star Wars movie? Yeah. But while we're on the. The creative minds. James Gunn, up until this point, his biggest hit, I would say, was the two Scooby-Doo movies, which he... That was him? Yes. Oh, my goodness. Which like, is... I have written down that it was... He just did Slither and... Well, Super. And Super. Yeah. Which, which are messed up. Which are, you know, his creative accomplishments, but they didn't make a lot of money. No, and, they did not. And by a lot of mo- money, I mean they made nothing. But Scooby-Doo was his secret shame where it's like, okay, well, I co-wrote and possibly directed one of them. I enjoyed Scooby-Doo. Yeah. I really did. I was a child at the time. But I think if I rewatched it, there'd be some good nuances, but it'd probably be cheesy overall. I think Skeptical Skylar would take over. But like I said, he joined in on in uh, 2012, and pretty much right after that is when they started casting... I think the first person they picked up was Chris Pratt for Star-Lord, and they went down the line with Gamora, Drax, they got Dave Bautista. And all these are coming at wonderfully timed places so that that the buzz never really fades for the film. Because, man, the guys at Marvel are marketing genius. Uh, They largely saved their voice cast for later on in the process, like just about a year in advance is when they announced that Vin Diesel would be voicing Groot, 
and well, that, we got three lines. Yeah, and that Bradley Cooper was taking on Rocket Raccoon, and this was well into filming. So one of the characters they added pretty much at the eleventh hour was the addition of Thanos, the big baddie of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yes, indeed, the big purple dude, big purple dude in a chair, so imposing. But um, <laughs> it was about I want to say it was June of this year, two months before the movie that actually came out, that they were like, "Oh, hey guys," and uh, Josh Brolin's voicing Thanos. What Marvel? What you doing? You're so funny, Skylar. It's unbelievable I with know. your voices. You I should know. take it on the road. <laughs> on the road show. And, uh, oh, two big factors of the marketing. July, the month before the movie came out, they hosted a 40-minute preview of it where select audiences got to see 40 minutes of the finished product. But no one seemed to know that they were just watching a clip of it and they thought they were actually watching the actual movie. Oh, man. So Twitter kind of exploded after that one. Oh, great. Twitter explodes on the daily nowadays. Oh, yeah. And then probably the movie's biggest cross-marketing success was, in fact, its soundtrack that peaked at number one for, oh, I don't I don't know how many weeks. Oh, and iTunes? Yeah. That's the number one album, Guardians of the Galaxy's Super Awesome Mix? I believe that's it. Yeah. And I, I mean, all the original songs are great, but when they, whatever the sound editors did, to spice up the songs, make them a bit more poppy, add a little bit more heavier beats. It was it was magic. It was so, and then they timed everything perfectly from trailer to film. And even when it starts out in the film with that with the "Come and Get Your Love" song, genius. It was great. It just really sets the mood in an instant for the film. Oh, I'm just trying to fight down skeptical Skylar right now, but lay it on me, skeptical Skylar. Oh, it lay just, it on me. It just didn't fit the movie. Oh. At all. It never came across to me as anything but just a marketing ploy of, like, people recognize these songs. Let's just plug them in any place we can. You're killing my soul. I'm sorry. I loved that soundtrack. I like the song. Every second of it. On their own, but I just didn't see the need. But not only did that get select critics and stuff pumped up for the movie beforehand, it kept audiences coming back after the movie came out. Just to hear the song again? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I'd say the risk they took on that paid off really well because it's still raking it in. And as far as critics go, I think it has a 92% on Rotten Tomatoes. So Rotten Tomatoes? How do they measure their things? Okay, Rotten Tomatoes is measured by... It takes the number of positive reviews uh-huh. um, by verified critics and negative reviews and it averages out the scores. So okay. if there's about... If it, does it take the entirety of the review, or does it like measure this is a positive comment, this is a negative comment? It runs on just whether it was a positive review or a negative review. It isn't cumulative to the scores that are given by each critic, although there is a less obvious little thing there that'll say average rating I see. 8 out of 10. Okay. But when I say 92%, I say 92% of critics gave it a favorable review. Are you the 8% Mr. Skeptical? I'm not, because I would still give it a positive review. I just, everything I want to talk about is negative, unfortunately. (laughs) I mean, I still had fun with it. That's the thing to take away from it. But I'm just a bit more skeptical. But it's just, it's a verifiable hit. That is true. Moving on, now we figure out the comparisons of some of the characters as well as some of the motives and such of what they were like in the source material and how they translated into the film. Because a lot of story elements are different on the printed page with pictures than are on the moving digital cinematography that is the theater. And you have to change certain things, certain things have to be left out, and that these are two different mediums. The storytelling methods have to be done differently. 
sacrifices have to be made, new things have to be added, stuff like that. And it's kind of fun to take a look at who did what where and stuff like that. So, first off, the team as a whole. The Guardians team in the books, they, of course, have no reputation. Their main motive, of, of course, I'm talking 2008 team, is that they repair holes in the universe with cosmic magic. It's ridiculous, but it's a fun time. I mean, it's a job that somebody has to do, so they're doing it. Now, of course, you can't set up all that development in a movie. So, Skyward, what happens in the film? Well, the uh, film's characters, they aren't so much concerned with repairing rips in the space-time continuum or whatnot, so much as keeping a very powerful orb away from the villain of the piece who is a giant religious fanatic who's going to destroy worlds with it and whatnot. And it's just, it's a story of these kind of separate losers who come together to stop a big bad force, if you will. Yeah, you got two anti-heroes, a villain, a raccoon, and a tree. Right. And they're all kind of on personal motives until eventually that glue sets in. The film really lets it in, the camaraderie of this is how you guys are going to get together and you're going to be charming and you're going to somehow be a team. The leader of that team is, of course, Star-Lord on both accounts. Now, Star-Lord in the books, he was an orphan. His mother and his father died early. Mother was killed. His father was an alien who abandoned him. And he is kind of a dick originally in that he conned his way into attaining this mantle called Star-Lord from another person who was supposed to get it. And then he just stole a spaceship and then traveled the spaceways to find the alien that killed his mother. Eventually, those characteristics don't really translate when it comes to 2008, and they kind of reverb the character a little bit, and instead, he becomes a high road leader. You know, he's always on the moral high ground. Eventually, they set up shop in a place called Nowhere, and his team gives themselves authority, and stated by him, minus the authority of this place. But he'll try to work with them, and then as soon as they don't work out, he just ditches them. He doesn't even care. Like, you guys are idiots. I gotta go do things. He is what I like to call Commander Shepard Syndrome. <laughs> It's okay to laugh. It's a joke. Oh, man. In that uh, Commander Shepard from the Mass Effect video game series has this thing where he constantly complains to the High Council, Galactic Council, oh, my goodness, these alien invaders are coming. If we don't do anything, we're all going to die. And the Council's like, shut up. You're an idiot. Prove it. And this is what Star-Lord does on the daily basis. These holes in the universe are going to tear the universe apart. We got to do something about it. Shut up. We don't care. We got our own problems. Now, on the movie end of things, there are echoes of his comic book origin. I mean, there's definitely a whole mommy issues thing going on there, as we see in the opening scene of the movie. He's basically left orphaned when his mom died. There's a mystery that's going on basically later in the movie about his father's true origins and whatnot, which we'll undoubtedly, you know, come talk back about later. later. Yeah. Yes, indeed. And yeah, he's pretty much a dick in this movie, too. Let's just say Han Solo, Mal Reynolds, space rogue dick is just like, you know, <laughs> space rogue dick. <laughs> I'm just not going to follow the law and sleep with a bunch of bitches and just do stuff like that. See, I always, I always enjoy that. Like the quickest thing to give a character that douchebag style setup is to like, you know, the beginning of the film is they've got like parking tickets because they've been parked in a handicap. The whole, like you, you instantly see like, oh man, this guy needs to get his life together. And it's a common trope to have the movies 
like he wakes up and within the first act of the film you have an unknown woman who was sleeping in the bed and he, you can't remember the person's name i mean they did the same thing in green lantern scott do you have any more movies that they did it in off the top of your head i don't i'm sorry okay i i trusted you but i needed you there all i have is one example but there was a good example Okay. Well, no, this is this is just what they did to establish. Let's not talk about Green Lantern. We'll get there. Well, we will. We will get there. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> but anyway, next up is uh, Gamora. And Gamora's real backstory is that her whole race was exterminated, and she's from a completely different universe altogether. She eventually is adopted by Thanos to become his personal assassin, and then... Once she is relieved of that adoption, like she just kind of figures things out on her own, she becomes very purposeless and joining the Guardians of the Galaxy team is a way of to give her a renewed purpose and that she's actually the biggest team player and sacrifices probably the most to be on that team. Movie? Movie actually sounds very similar to the comic in the film version where she's played by Zoe Saldana. She's also a daughter of Thanos not a big fan of it. We see early on that she's trying to escape her life as an assassin and basically one of the most hated people in the universe. Um, she sees that through this orb, she can possibly get away from that. And it kind of morphs into through this group, she can also have a purpose that's not being a cold-blooded killer. So Gamora is actually pretty in line with the comic book version. And she's arguably one of the more sympathetic members of the group. Now, let's get to the to the roots of Groot. Haha, <laughs> <laughs> I get it. Yes. I get what you went through. Yes, thank you. I've been I wrote that one down. <laughs> I have been Have you been losing sleep over it just yes, I'm I've gonna been... say that Groot line and he's gonna laugh <laughs> and it's gonna be so funny. <laughs> but Groot originally came about in about nineteen sixty when he first entered comics. Nineteen sixty he was an invader from the planet X, bent on conquering the world as a big tree. Now, after that one-shot story where he was defeated by Nick Fury and the Howling Commandos, we see him again in 2008. And he joins Guardians of the Galaxy because they create this wonderful sympathetic backstory where his, his planet has these mammal workers that are look like humans. Everybody else treats them like slaves, but he sees them as more equals, as, as human beings. So he protects one when there's a scuffle. And then, of course, his whole species ostracizes him, kicks him out, and he eventually makes his way into the Guardians of the Galaxy. There's a fun thing about Groot is that he's actually from a royal sap line. Hopefully this will get touched on in the movie because this is great. This title is fantastic. He is King Groot the Twenty Third, monarch of Planet X, custodian of the branch worlds, and ruler of all he shades. Also, he's a genius in quasi-dimensional superpositional engineering. Who would have thought? Ridic- this is a tree! It's a tree who can only say, I am Groot, in that order. It's, it's funny. They explain that in the book as his larynx being too stiff for people to understand so that it always comes out as, I am Groot. Whereas like, there are certain characters that can understand him. Rocket, not in the book, can't do it. But in the movie... In the movie, it appears he can understand him just fine. Also, going back to the Han Solo Chewbacca thing, it's very much an instance where the character is just saying garble smooch, but there's that one person who can actually understand him and translate what he's saying. 
which I know it was very intentional that I said Chewbacca because Groot in the film I they don't have any backstory like that so far but he's very much the big stupid quote unquote muscle with a heart of gold cute stupid yep yeah cute stupid like just a big baby he's just a big wants to help exactly and then there's parts where he's impaling people and flinging them all around and that was a very brutal scene i want to touch on that real quick (laughs) i i actually really enjoyed that scene you see i was very much with the film and then seeing groot like run his branch through like five masked infiltrator ronin people and then swing them around and scream and then turn and you expect him to say like i am groot but he just smiles (laughs) And the whole audience lights up with laughter. Yeah. I was like, we just watched five people die. I don't care if they're bad guys. That was a brutal murder. <laughs> I think that's very much in line with a lot of the stuff that James Gunn does. If you Yes, that was a very James Gunny moment. That was a super moment is what that was. Yes, you're familiar with the director. He does that kind of stuff a lot where it's like really graphic things, but and then, cheeky. And then it's like, laugh, you plebeians, laugh. <laughs> Groot also was a very abstract character. Like, like his whole draw, his whole design is very faceless, and it never really changes throughout the film. No, not so much. Um, so there's like there's this wonderful cracked video where they sort of. <laughs> oh yes, we can reference cracked. Yes. That's okay. Yes. In that, <laughs> don't give me that look skeptical. Uh, no, this is pure elation. <laughs> okay, in that they talk about how Groot is like the perfect character for modern audiences. Because of his total abstractism, and that we can now juxtapose, juxtaposition, juxtapose, juxtapose ourselves into this group character completely. Because not only is he extremely vague, like in design, he also doesn't really say anything. He doesn't have anything that really defines him. It's all abstract. It's a beautiful thing. It's like if instead of a giant tree man, there was just a big shadow where film should be in the shape of a human. And it's like, put yourself right there, audience. Well, you can impale those five men and swing them around and turn around and smile because you did the right thing. <laughs> feel gl- feel proud of yourself. Uh, next on the team is Rocket Raccoon, uh, which is a personal favorite of mine. But in the book, he's really a Beatles reference. Yeah, he's based on a Beatles song, sort of, called Rocky Raccoon. Let me play a little bit of that for you. Now somewhere in the black mining hills of Dakota, there lived a young boy named Rocky Raccoon. And one day his woman ran off with another guy. Hit young Rocky in the eye. Rocky didn't like that. He said, I'm going to get that boy. So one day he walked into town, booked himself a room in the local saloon. Rocky Raccoon checked into his room. I'll be honest, never heard this before. But anyway, Rocket eventually becomes the conscience of the team. He is the most loyal member of the team. There's a there's a plot line where everybody sort of goes their own separate ways because there was a betrayal. But Rocket stays on the team. Because he has the most attachment to what this could be and how he feels about Star-Lord and all these other characters. He's the one that is the first to accept it as a family. As far as loyalty goes, I think the movie version of Rocket Raccoon is probably the least loyal member of the team. Not in that, you know, he betrays them or anything. Just he's most reluctant to go along with 
what the other members were doing. And as far as his characterization in the film, he's largely both the comic relief and kind of shoulders also some of the dramatic moments during the film. I've referred to him more than once as Joe Pesci raccoon just because of his kind of, you know, (laughs) rude, fast-paced stylings of jokes and all that stuff, which a lot of the times works, sometimes it doesn't, but um, it's also a very... I will say that, you know, between him and Groot, they're both very impressive digital characters. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, they're... Completely. Yeah, I mean, just kind of like the the facial expressions going on there are pretty impressive, I have to say. I mean, I was scrounging the internet for any first look at Rocket Raccoon that I could because there's that running joke of DC's asked about Wonder Woman and, oh, no, uh, I don't think the American audiences are ready for a woman. And then they go to the Marvel representative, our next movie is going to feature a raccoon. <laughs> And it's a fu- it's a popular internet joke, and um, it's true, and it's completely true. Well, until now, until now, right. <laughs> it just released like two days ago. Doing Wonder Woman, <laughs> exactly. but at the like a year ago, uh, two years ago, when when Guardians was on the slate, I was looking for anybody who leaked anything from D Hall at Comic Con of that first Guardians preview because I just wanted to see what Rocket Raccoon looked like. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't really want to hear it or anything. I, I understood Groot was going to look like a tree, but I needed to see the raccoon as an anamorphic thing. And I did. It was amazing. It yeah. was all fantastic. It's my favorite. I, yeah, I'm guessing you weren't uh, disappointed in any way. <laughs> yeah, and Bradley Cooper absolutely nails him as the voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, up almost in every interview up until the movie came out when Gunn was asked about Rocket Raccoon, he, like, he's gone on record multiple times saying that, you know, Rocket Raccoon's the heart of the piece and whatnot. And it's like, really? Yeah, I can see that. You know, he's got not only kind of the smarmy comedy that the movie... Well, he took the longest to convert. Oh, yeah. From his original, everybody's got their personal motives. But it was him who took the longest to be like, this is bigger than us. Mm-hmm. We need to become a team and fight this threat. Yeah, he's arguably the most selfish one of the the group, but when he does finally switch over, it's good stuff. It's a tremendously sincere character pulling moment. Oh yes, yes, very, very much, much so. so. Mm, yes, yes, yes. Uh, finally, we're, the we're last member. Of the, to, <laughs> what? We're going over to NPR here. Oh yeah. <laughs> this is Terry Gross with Fresh Air, <laughs> Voice of the Nation, and the final member of the. Guardians of the Galaxy trope from the film is, of course, probably the most dynamic in that it was Drax the Destroyer, and he has the most interesting of the backstories. He was originally a real estate agent human of Earth, sees Thanos scoping out the planet for invasion. Thanos sees him. Thanos kills his family because you saw me, and you weren't supposed to see that. Arthur survives that blast, and Thanos' dad turns Arthur into a species called the Destroyers and with the sole purpose of killing his son, Thanos. What the... No kidding, I mean... But what's interesting is that you... um, This character has gone through many transformations from being a bumbling idiot to what is now, in the books at least, a tremendously tactical character. He may be the smartest member of the team when it comes to a battle. 
he is extremely cold and calculating. So it's an, it's it's extremely intelligent. But when it comes to the movie, that is not the case. You mentioned a bumbling idiot a minute there. I'm going to go there. Yeah, I think that's more in line with what they had uh, going on. The Drax in the movie keeps the uh, the kind of uh, plot thread of family is killed, not by Thanos, but by the villain of the piece, Ronan the Accuser. But beyond that, they basically play him up as, you know, just kind of an idiot and a joke. It's funny is he takes the most drastic deviation from the source material, and there's a pretty behind-the-scenes reason for that. Yeah, I don't know if it was they just didn't have faith in the acting chops of Dave Bautista, the pro wrestler turned actor who played him. Understandable. This was, what, his second flick? Exactly. Behind uh, Man with the Iron Fists, in which I don't think he says anything. No, he's just he's got golden arms, right, and swings him around. Yeah, something ah! like that. Yeah. <laughs> but I do know that originally Jason Moma was supposed to be Drax, and they did have to not go with him but part of me says that also i think they went with the kind of less complex portrayal of him just to make it more audience accessible in which case good mission job accomplished yeah. yeah good job yeah <laughs> i nothing goes over my head which I'm he, too fast i could appreciate the running gag of his people not understanding figurative speech or whatnot they trusted batista to be an idiot <laughs> and you know what I think he blew it out of the park. I think he did well. (laughs) There was, of course, those stories of how many acting classes he took and the rumor of of how after it was announced that he got the job, he broke down crying at the opportunity. (sighs) And it's funny. This was supposed to be Jason Momoa's job. Exactly. And he turned it down because Marvel plays hardball. That's yep. a that's that's a truth. They absolutely do and they have no shortage of enemies because of it. So. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean they they can't afford to because they are debatably the biggest name in film industry currently. Debatably. I wouldn't debate it. <laughs> and they just made a team of hodgepodge brand characters from gobbledygook comic references into a mo- almost a billion dollar property, which is insane. That's some serious poker playing right there. That's cards are down on the table. Bam. And now finally, the, the antagonist of Ronan. Ronan's slightly interesting in that, of course, he's a member of the alien race Kree, and he's got has a small... It doesn't really have his own agenda, per se, in that he does everything for the glory of the Kree Empire. And that can be good sometimes, and that can be really bad sometimes. This movie wanted to focus very much on the bad. Yeah, there weren't very many positive outcomes of his actions in this. Played by Lee Pace, they they very much showed Ronan as a religious fanatic willing to go to the ultimate extremes to destroy races that were not in line with the, the Kree Empire and their beliefs and whatnot. This portrayal of uh, Ronan, I don't know how much it different differs from the comic book version, but it's very much in line with what I call the Red Skull archetype that Marvel has kind of established since Captain America, and that it's, uh, once again, a villain who is using a very powerful ancient artifact to wipe out his enemies or take over the world, or usually both, and it's something we've seen with the title Red Skull. We've seen it with Loki in the Avengers. 
Uh, we saw it with Malekith in Thor The Dark World, and now we see it again with uh, Ronin. You know, that's interesting. Talking about Marvel villains, do any of them, any antagonists that have shown up in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, have redeeming qualities? Like, a lot of the times, the, fil- the villains end up being very two-dimensional MacGuffins to sort of progress the plot, and really it's all about character development. Like, I always like to say that Guardians of the Galaxy is about a boy and his mom, about how Star-Lord, no matter how far away he can run, he can never get past the the death of his mother. And, of course, when you see that in the final climax of the movie, it, that final scene of reaching out for his mother's hand and that, that sort of cosmic closure, and it sort of negates everything that the whole plot of the movie was about, the orb, Ronan, everything. And it's interesting to think that are all the other Marvel villains? But, I mean, I, you can make a case for Loki. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, Loki is definitely set up to be the most sympathetic of the villains. You know, kind of see where he's coming from. I think Winter Soldier, although he's, you know, not ultimately the hardcore f- villain of the piece, obviously he ha- things with his history do kind of... Bucky Barnes? Yep, yeah, have a, uh, a sympathetic twinge to them. He's brainwashed. Right, exactly. And um, apparently Malekith was supposed to have this whole subplot about how his family was wiped out and stuff, but it never made it into the movie. Ooh, we're going to talk about that later, that's for sure. I had no idea that was a thing. Yeah. Um, the only other, other one I would say that it wasn't quite, oh, I feel for them, but like their motivations were, oh, you know, that's, that's interesting. I can kind of understand that. Probably Emil Blonsky in The Incredible Hulk. Ooh, we're digging deep now. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think that was a, probably the best villain up until Loki showed up in that he's this 40-something-year-old soldier who just who's getting too old to do his job but wants to stay in there. So He's about to be completely disregarded, cast out by the institution that he's been in for the last all of his life mm-hmm. just because he can't do his job anymore at a peak level. Right. And then, of course... You get that small sympathetic bean until he goes crazy. Right, exactly. Uh, But more on The Incredible Hulk later. Yeah, but to get back to your question, I think on the whole, most of Marvel's villains are kind of mustache twirlers. (laughs) So Great description. Exactly. Uh, A final aspect to touch on is the Novacore, which in their home planet of whatever (laughs) in the film... Xandar. Xandar? Oh, wonderful. Xandar. Xandar. They're very much a counter to the Green Lantern core of the DC side of comic books and that they're this intergalactic policeman who are given extra powers to intergalactically police. And you don't really see those extra powers in the film. You just see them as sort of foot soldiers with a couple characteristics of John C. Riley and Glenn Close being a statue. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, even John C. Riley doesn't have, like, much to do other than you know, a line at the end where it's like, you saved my family, who was never mentioned up until this point. Thank you, Star-Lord. Let me add a little bit more emotional depth to your heroic tasks. <laughs> yes. Your actions have consequence. <laughs> Skeptical Skyward strikes again! <laughs> yeah. It's basically a background entity entity of the whole thing. It's like... Here's the established law and order, and here are these guys who are going to take things that, into their own that hands. That feel cheated by the established law and order and now want a new law and order and are willing to kill everyone, which makes them bad guys. 
Right, exactly. I don't think the the dynamic between the Guardians of the Galaxy and the Nova Corps is as interesting as, you know, what you kind of described it as with Star-Lord and them, where it's like, this wormhole is going to wipe us out too busy, and then he just goes and does his own thing. So, that wraps up Conceros. Oh, other than, of course, the small extra character of Cosmo the Space Dog. How could we almost forget about Cosmo the Space Dog? He is actually, you see him very minimally in the film. Right. No, he's not in the film. Or is he? Yeah, there's just a quick shot in the collector scene there where... He breaks out. He breaks out. During the the, explosion. And then the final uh, after-credits scene, the collector's sitting on the... his stoop or whatever, and the dog just comes up and licks his face. Yes. And you think that's like a throwaway kind of funny thing, a dog in an astronaut suit? Easter egg. Cosmo the Space Dog is a large character of the Guardian's book. He's of the Guardian's whole mythos (laughs) in that he is the security guard for nowhere, um, for the Guardians, and he controls their teleporter. He communicates. He speaks Russian. He's a relic of the 1960s Soviet space program. He hates Rocket Raccoon. Is absolutely hilarious as an extra. Like, if you mess with this dog, he will knock your brain out. He's a very powerful character. Um, it's interesting to see if they go that route in the in the next film, mm-hmm. Guardians Two. Who knows? It may be too cosmic for them, too gobbledygook. But who knows? I I doubt it'll be too much. Yeah, I mean. Now that they've established that they can actually get away with a movie starring a talking tree and raccoon, yes, I think the sky is kind of the limit on a space dog who's a badass. <laughs> yes. Also just speaks Russian. That's great. Oh, nice. But uh, you mentioned that uh, little S word called sequel. Yes. Speculation time. And we are just going to go firing through these topics on, you know what? What do you think Guardians of the Galaxy 2 is like at this point? You have a huge successful film now. They've already announced a sequel pretty much the day after. Not even the day after. They announced it weeks before at Comic-Con. It was like, oh, and hey, Guardians 2, July 28th, 2017. Which is funny because I remember interviews as early as April or May where Gunn was like, no, this is pretty much just going to be a one-off. We're not doing any kind of sequel. Oh, wow. <laughs> Which, and then now he's super excited to go right back into the characters, write another script, and make another half, three-quarters of a mil- billion dollars. Exactly. And you can see a lot of the kind of side stories that are in the film that might lead up into a sequel and think that, oh, I wonder how late these were added in. I mean, they're clearly there to be like follow-up time. Now, Guardians has topped off at about $750 million. Five. $755 million? Uh, just five at this point. It just seven hundred and five. I see. Okay. And on a budget of $270 million, let's take a, just a quick... We are still two years away, right, of Guardians 2. Now, let's take a guess. Judging the budget's going to be close to $270 million, probably maybe they'll go a little higher, 280 290 possibly 300 because they trust this brand at this point. What do you think it's going to make? Um, well, just seeing how much it's made, uh, sequels have big advantage internationally because that's how we get movies like Pirates and Pirates 3 and 4 where they'll start making less money in the United States, but they'll make more money internationally. So I think there's very much a possibility it could reach a billion. Oh, boy. 
Yeah. A billion. One billion. The billion the billion cross mark. Now everybody that's just like the hot topic of every superhero movie. If it doesn't make a billion, is it a failure? <laughs> and it all depends on of course the amount of money spent. Mm-hmm. And two hundred and seventy is just the production budget. Exactly. Two hundred seventy million is just the product. That's not even including marketing budget. I I would not be surprised if they added at least another fifty million to marketing. Other things. Let's uh, talk a little bit more about the plot and that the big nagging question of Guardians is in the second one or in any other subsequent 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 subsequent. Thank you. Yep. Marvel film. Will they touch on Peter Quill's dad? Yeah, that was the plot line that we were kind of referring to that crops up and is definitely meant to be played out in the the follow-ups if you know if it wasn't obvious enough just that exchange between Yondu at the end and his his dude it's like maybe we should have delivered that kid to his dad that guy was a jackass in the book we're gonna bring it back to the book again it's highly doubtful to go this route because it's it's even more obscure and unnecessary in that his dad is a Spartoy alien, which is another long list of humanoid-looking aliens, and his name is Jay Sun. You know, had sex with his mom and then left. And and the character itself doesn't really have a whole rich history or anything, so it's fun to speculate that they're not going to go that route at all. Right. They're going to pick someone in the Marvel Universe to be his dad. And because they talked about in the film... He's part celestial or something like that. There's some reference to that. Like when Quill's mom is dying, he's just, it's like, your dad was an angel or something like that. And, and when they diagnose him after the whole climax scene, of just like, you're half something else. Something very ancient. <laughs> yes. It's like, well, now we know why Glenn Close is in this movie. But <laughs> Now, I heard a fun theory that there is this character called Star Fox in the books. And he's a comical character in that his power is controlling emotions of those around him. But the interesting aspect about him is that he happens to be Thanos' brother, an alien that can control emotions. Basically, he's known as a, a, a sex god. I mean, if you want to get really blatant about it. But I heard this theory, and I thought, wow, that really nails it. I mean, it really feels like there's a lot to pull from there. It's like you're related to Thanos, that can get very interesting very fast. I think you might be on to something or whoever came up with that because I do know that in an interview a couple of weeks after the film came out and, you know, people knew they were going to be this, found out that this might be something that comes up in Guardians 2. Gunn was just pretty much like, yeah, it's not going to be Jason. Yeah. So, okay, great. Yeah, so that does kind of throw that out the window, but... Good. Stupid character. Okay, good. Also, let's talk about What's the deal with Rocket's scars? Yeah, I mean, it's not made nearly as big a deal as, you know, Quill's dad and whatnot, but there's some glances about, you know, the scars and kind of who made Rocket into this quote-unquote little monster. Do you think they'll ever touch on it, or is it just a small sympathetic ploy? God, I want to say a little bit of both. I mean, obviously they wanted to kind of get some of the more milk some of the more heartwarming moments out of it. Even if it was just two seconds. Right, exactly. But seeing how the character is kind of clearly a fan favorite at this point, I would be surprised if they didn't give him more kind of focus for the sequel, too. Yeah, Yeah. and it really brought up 
a great scene in the film of Bradley Cooper bringing out the Oscar bait in this film. Of, you know, <laughs> you think I wanted to be like this? I'm a genetic freak. I didn't ask to be like this. It's very moving. I mentioned before, it's one of those scenes where he has kind of the dramatic heft on his shoulders, too. One of those more moving moments that come out of nowhere, really. So, And, of course, continues to add depth in a team film. Right, exactly. Which is difficult to do because you have six main characters. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, you have one main character and five yeah. almost main characters. Wasn't it determined that this was the Marvel film that had the most amount of characters in it so far? <sighs> it would seem like that much would be so. I mean, it seems like every new scene you're going to a new planet and creates another level to the space opera that is awesome Skyler it's awesome damn it <laughs> it's an amazing film it, it looks awesome quit being so dissy <laughs> and finally what's the, the like, how do you think it'll tie in with the rest of the Marvel Cinematic Universe hmm. where are we gonna see the Guardians next besides their next film because well, they'll probably get referenced somewhere yes up until news of about a week ago um which I don't think nulls this news I'm about to say. Uh, shortly after the movie, there was talk that maybe it's one of the Avenger films, maybe it's one of the Guardians films, but there's definitely talk of an Avengers-Guardians crossover that's going to happen sometime in the future. Is it set in stone? No. Will we probably see a Guardians movie that features characters from the established uh, Marvel movies we've seen up until now? Almost certainly, but... What it, was what would give them the biggest entry point, the easiest entry point? Well, it seems that the most... The tie-through for this seemingly really different Marvel movie and the ones we've seen thus far is the... Douche. <laughs> <laughs> is the uh, inclusion of the Infinity Stones, which it turns out that the orb that they're chasing around in the movie is one of them... Uh, the ether that we saw in Thor the Dark World is one of them as well, as well as the Tesseract and the uh, Loki's staff, I'm pretty sure. That's a rumored one. I don't think they've even confirmed that. Yeah, I don't know if they've confirmed it either. But these items that have shown up thus far. And this is the film that deals probably the most with them and Thanos so far, who up until this, this point was just seen as, you know, like, literally a two-second smile at the end of the Avengers. So it seems like whenever they're going to get around to this big, huge story where all these cosmic gems come together, that seems like the most logical point in which Avengers and Guardians of the Galaxy are going to meet, are going to clash, are going to meet, probably clash. They'll probably have some sort of minor fight scene. Right. Give the fans what they want. Exactly. Gonna be at least an hour of someone trying to outsnark each other. So. Oh yes! Oh my goodness! We're gonna get so much quippiness, so much snark, Tony Snark. <laughs> Do you think there's a possibility that they might try and interconnect the two with Doctor Strange? Because that's also very ethereal and otherworldly. I might see some fleeting moments. I don't think you're gonna get any direct communication. But you're going to get a fleeting moment like they do in Winter Soldier. Uh, Tony Stark, Stephen Strange, targets of interest. Or like you got in Thor 2 where Loki turns into Chris Evans. It wasn't really a tie-in, but it's just a little quip that these are all shared universes. All these things are happening at the same time. Just a little wink and a nod. And they're all happening in different places. 
So, like, you might see Doctor Strange trying to travel the spirit world or something of the like. And, you know, suddenly he's takes a wrong turn and he, the spirit world's measure of distance is messed up and he flies way out to nowhere. K, nowhere with a K, that head thing that floats around. And he sees Chris Pratt and Rocket and they say some sort of funny joke about something. Like you feel like you're being watched or some sort of actual joke that I can't write because I'm not the best writer. And then Doctor Strange will come back and will continue with the rest of the film. Yeah, I can be down with that. That's probably the extent of which because they have a lot on their plate with Doctor Strange anyway. So. <laughs> Do you think Guardians of the Galaxies will interject an Ant-Man? Oh, God. Let's nope. just... What's the, what, no? We're going to go with a no? You're just going to go with a no. <laughs> well... That's with that comment on uh, the next movie coming out, Ant-Man. Mm-hmm. But that's not the next one we're going to cover. Next up, we're going to be doing Amazing Spider-Man 2. So hold on to your Gwen Stacy's, everybody. Superhero Movie Breakdown is brought to you by Michael J. Maurer and James S. Houtsma, recorded in the studios of KMSU in Mankato, Minnesota. Make sure to... To subscribe online from whatever distributor you found this podcast on. Thank you very much. And that's going to do it for us today. I'm Michael Maurer. I'm James Skyler Hutzma. Thank you all for listening in, and I hope you have a super week. Mm-hmm.